Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are beginning our new mini-series, covering all the films in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrel series, entitled Squeaky Clean Do-Gooders. We will fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing excellently. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling good. Good. I'm feeling especially good because today we are honored to have not one, but two special guests. Woo-woo! They're actors, directors, singers. They're two of the co-founders of Happy Accident Theater in Atlanta. They're perhaps best known to our audience for, in 2021, still <laughs> keeping Pokemon Go alive. Yeah. Please welcome... Molly Penny and Zach Stoles. <laughs> I caught a legendary two hours ago. It was a great feeling. Wait, wait, wait. What'd you cut? It was, uh, so it's from like the Pearl generation, which I didn't play. Uh, it was like Thunderous or Landorus, but they have, which is like this legendary Pokemon that looks like the little dude hanging from the cloud with like the fishing pole in Mario Kart. Rakitu. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I like it too. We were in a reading of short vignettes of play based on Mario Kart by our friend Riley Rawson. Very fun. It's the only reason why I know who Lakitu like is. <laughs> yeah, I was really taking a bet there because I was like, I haven't seen you guys in almost exactly a year. And I was like, are they still playing Pokemon Go? Yes. Sure. I, I will sure say I've, I've definitely <laughs> fallen behind. I've been distracted by other... Mm. Other um, lovely, lighthearted games, i.e. Animal Crossing New Horizons, but I'm working on getting back into Pokemon Go because I do love it. It's it's very good. I love Animal Crossing. What? Oh, okay. Um, tell me, tell me about your island. So I named it Kermit Cove because I love Kermit the Frog, <laughs> and um, oh it's uh, honestly I haven't done a lot of like terraforming or restructuring um so much as just going and hanging out and talking Mm -hmm. to my my fellow islanders and i collected all the fossils so now i'm working on the fish and the bugs my favorite islander i think is celia she's an eagle uh (laughs) i i feel like the animal crossing like the birds always look a little just like a little strange but I love her. She's very, very sweet. So she's my favorite. I, I also have Kabuki, mm-hmm. who is a cat. He's my favorite. <laughs> and he uh, he has that. <laughs> love Kabuki so, so much. Good. He has that, like, um, the sort of crotchety old man personality, uh, which is fun. And then um, he, he is designed like a Kabuki mask. So he has, he's a white cat with the red fiery sort of stripes, um, like Kabuki theater. So that's fun. Mm. Um, but yes, thank you. Wow. Yeah. My Island is, it's a good time. Um, uh, makes me very happy. <laughs> I also got all of the fossils actually just the other day. I like finally got the one that I had been missing. Yes. And that happened, it was like two days ago. Yeah. It was <laughs> probably maybe two days ago for me too, but I have done nothing for the fish or the bugs. I truly do not care about the fish. I cannot be bothered about it. <laughs> I am more interested in the fish than the bugs. I caught a butterfly the other day that I thought was new, like a new seasonal bug. Mm -hmm. It was not. I found it before. And I think that just goes to show you how much attention I pay to the bugs (laughs) on my island. (laughs) 
There was that terrible fetch quest in uh, Twilight Princess, Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, where you had to find all the bugs. You can't bugs in video games, man. Weird, Ooh. terrible. They don't. You don't have to do a lot of design work. I think is part of it. I, this is me talking completely out of class. I have no idea, but I imagine like That's they're so true. small. How That's much true. detail do you have to put into it? In Animal Crossing, you can see individual blades of grass blowing in yeah. the breeze, like while a gentle tune soothes yeah. your soul. Sounds so. nice there. It is nice. I think it would be very relaxing for you, Emmett. I hate relaxing things. I've, I am at 99.28% completion on Legend of Zelda Age of Calamity. So deal with that. Okay. We are here to discuss the movie Bedtime Story from 1964. Molly, Zach, had either of you seen this movie before? No. I'm not. Definitely not. Had you seen either either of the remakes, um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or The Hustle? I saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels like a long, long, long time ago. And then uh, like to the point where I'm more familiar with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical. Oh, I had forgotten. The movie got turned into a musical. There is a musical starring John Lithgow as Lawrence, Norbert Leo Butts as Freddie, Sherry Renee Scott, uh, Joanna Gleason, I believe, and Gregory Jabara as Andre. Uh, it is very wow. fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the University of Arkansas did it while I was in high school, and I went and saw it. And uh, one of my favorite, like, two of my favorite local actor guys, um, the lead, were Freddie and Lawrence. And then I've seen 70, 60, 70% of the hustle um, at the coffee shop I work at. We have a TV, big, uh, big old TV that we put up. And uh, one day, uh, one of my coworkers, Ashley, she put up the hustle. And so, like, I watched it in between orders and stuff. So I, <laughs> I think a vague idea of most of it we got kind of busy so i lost track is there a filmed version of the musical do you know i don't but i imagine there's some decent broadway bootlegs out there okay um the album's on spotify and there's there's some catchy stuff like i just i hear bits of it in my head every now and then freddie has a has a love ballad where he sings um and this is vaguely pertinent. This is pertinent to, to, to bedtime story. But he's, it's like, love is my legs and you are my love. So you are my legs, my love. And, and I just, I think about it like once a month. It just kind of plays through my head. Do you know when they made it into a musical? Uh, John Lithgow. John Lithgow was available. <laughs> is, he, is he ever not? He's always working. Is he dead? I feel like that would be insensitive if he's dead. He's still oh, with us. You think only if he's dead that would be insensitive? <laughs> no, I mean the man is the man has been in everything. This is fair. Name name a movie that John Lithgow wasn't in. Bedtime Story. Okay, well <laughs> you have me there. Uh, Molly, have you seen either of the the remakes? No, um, I have not. I have seen trailers for The Hustle. It looked mm-hmm, cute mm-hmm. and fun. I, I haven't seen it. And I think I had like a vague awareness of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because I like Steve Martin, but I have never seen the movie. So this is my first uh, foray into this uh, story, I guess. So just some fun facts for, for this is mostly for like me and our mutual friend Callie Derryberry, who's a fellow obsessive over just factoids. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical came out in 2004. Music and lyrics by David Yazbek, who wrote The Band's Visit, one of the greatest musicals to come out in the last 10 years. Other notable Broadway replacements, Jonathan Price from 
a lot of stuff, but mostly as like one of the most reprehensible people on Game of Thrones, took over for Lawrence. Lucy Arnaz took over for Muriel Eubanks, one of Lawrence's marks, being Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's daughter. Yeah, wow. Richard Kind took over as ah. Andre. Oh, I would have loved to see that. Yes! I love yeah. him so much. <laughs> so 2004 okay. is when we got that. I had I had never seen this movie either, um, but I had watched the old um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels as a kid as a movie that my father loved or loved or said that he loved and made us watch. And uh, <laughs> I, I loved it. And I've seen it a couple a couple of times, um, but I'd never seen this. But I was surprised by how similar they were up into a very important point. Mm. That's all I'll say about that. Ah, That's all I will say about that. Yeah. Okay. okay. It is the redeeming quality of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels that this movie lacks. <laughs> uh, big agree. And I, I know how to talk about that and still keep it spoiler free for your kid. Because I'm also very, I'm torn because I, I want to know what's different because I have a theory, but I, I also uh, don't want mm. to, to spoil anything. I don't know. Wade, have you seen this movie before? No, I've never seen any of these movies before. I've I've never seen anything, and I realize that it's a very dangerous game picking a series that I know nothing about. (laughs) There was a a certain point in this movie we watched that I was like, do we have to cancel the whole series? (laughs) Can we talk about this? I don't think you get canceled for talking about problematic culture. I don't know. Maybe we do. Maybe we will. But I don't think you... I don't, I don't, think, I don't think enough people know what this movie is <laughs> to truly understand on site what's going on with it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's worth diving into, though. I think it's worth getting into the guts of it, you know, and like talking about like, was this movie like especially sexist and problematic and like right. bad towards folks with different different abilities back in the day? Or was this like accepted filmmaking at the time? Yeah, I'm interested to discuss that. Uh, as we mentioned, this movie is called Bedtime Story. It is about two con men, one who is a young American and one who is a, an older British man who both make their living by conning women into sleeping with them and then stealing or being given or otherwise procuring their jewelry and expensive items and then selling them, presumably. Uh, And these two men who are entirely separate have been doing that, meet each other and start to work together. And then the second half of the movie is sort of having a, a bet, a contest to see who can achieve a certain mark first them in conflict with each other that is the setup of the film it was directed by ralph levy who uh, was a sitcom director this is his first film and only one of two that he'd ever made but he directed the pilot of i love lucy and he won the emmy for best directing in 1960 a few years before this came out so he was like a big tv director this was his first film I think that shows because it feels like a TV movie, even for the 60s, because when I read you the other names of movies from 1964, you're gonna be like, oh, those are movies. This looks like a TV show the mm-hmm. whole way through, um, just in like its production quality. And yet the way that it cuts from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also I just feel like overall, it definitely like that helps knowing that it was his first film that just yeah, it makes a lot of sense because it, it 
some formatting. So it's just like a lot of the setup things didn't necessarily come through. And I don't know exactly how to explain it. But like, yes, the fact that that was his first movie definitely shows not necessarily in a bad way, but it definitely shows. And that helps make mm-hmm. sense of a lot of uh, stylistic things for me. Yeah, there's one a shot when they're in the German house where I swear you can see like the studio set ceiling at the top of the frame. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell that the camera is just pulled back too much. (laughs) Uh, You can see the rafters in it. (laughs) This film was written by Stanley Shapiro, who won three Oscars or was nominated three times, won for Pillow Talk, a Doris Day comedy. that's a very cute movie. I've seen that one. He wrote it with Paul Henning, who's the other man who also wrote this movie, who is mostly a TV guy. He created the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, also very familiar. Uh, there's a score by Hans J. Salter. Wait, there's a score in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it just sounded like music when you're on hold. Like all the, This whole score got appropriated by dentist's office across the nation. <laughs> I swear it does not sound like there's music in most of it. It's like if you were outside at a party and inside they were playing The Girl from Ipanema and you pressed like a glass up to the door to try to hear what was going on. Like that's what the score was to me. Because like it, it vaguely had a little bit of like that. But then it just kind of like took a weird little journey away on its own. And I might be being too generous there. I remember no music whatsoever. I only remember sound effects. Yeah, I remember a lot of sound effects and like little like cues or motifs or something. Mm-hmm. Basically like the equivalent of like when someone gets hit on the head in Looney Tunes. Oh. I truly do not remember any music. Oh man. This film runs, I am reading, one hour and 39 minutes, which is news to me since it certainly felt like four hours. <laughs> uh wait this movie or the snyder cut if you had to watch one of them again which would you pick i legitimately have thought about this the snyder cut did feel faster that was the flash that was just the flash probably would not choose it but yeah i do think if i may i i do think that's interesting because um it was a comedy i just felt like there were no jokes like there were moments, there were a couple really good jokes. There were like there were like three really solid setup pay like very good street mm-hmm. jokes. Like good good uh like there was one towards the beginning where where Andre's like he she has this many dollars and this many, she's this old, whatever. And um and uh, uh Lawrence is like, ah, oh, 36, 37, 38, good measurement. Something something like that. It was very funny. I found that very funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the only joke I remember from the movie. Uh, and, and I think just it's a, it was it's a comedy. It's supposed to feel fast and feel funny, and it never really did. The jokes mm-hmm. all kind of just sat mm. there, except for that one that I remembered. So I yeah, I, I found that very uh, off putting, and it definitely made the film feel longer. I agree, and I think there's a like a really good reason why. Mm. I think no one knows. None of the actors are in the same movie. That's my take on this. None of the actors are like in the same world. They don't Mm -hmm. know what world they're in. Marlon Brando thinks (laughs) he's in like a golden age romance, but he's got all this schlocky stuff to play. And David, 
David Niven thinks he's in a Noel Coward play, which Absolutely. works, which is what yeah. this feels like it should be. Yes. yes. And then like everything else, like everything else is just a mess. And Andre, that actor, uh, 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 Lawrence oh, David like Niven's this. like personal assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. He he was funny uh, with his determination. To just hmm. he just <laughs> wanted to kill somebody. God, please let me just kill somebody. I have this Nazi's gun. It still has his fingerprints on it. I will shoot this man <laughs> with this Nazi's gun and blame it on the Nazi. That was a good joke. That, that, that was a great was a joke. joke. However, can we please? It's never like what? How did he get this? This this man pulls out this gun and says, "This gun belonged to Herman Goering. It has his fingerprints on it. I will use it." And no one, no one is like, "What belonged to who?" I'm sorry. Where did you? How? He, I, he clearly killed Herman Goering. Like, that's it was the sixties in Europe. It was a wild time. God. <laughs> Just Nazi handguns lying around. You could find them on the beach. Yeah. Yikes! And also, I'm sorry. I this movie did not feel like a sixties movie. It felt like a fifties movie. In a, I think in in mm. several ways because I've been thinking. Like, oh, what other 60s movies have I seen? Have I liked? And the one that I keep going back to is Charade, which is an incredible <gasps> film starring Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Walter Matthau. Uh, it is an excellent time. Uh, that movie, it, it, in my remembering anyway, feels decades ahead of this yes. movie that we all just watched. And it came out a full year earlier. It's like bouncy and sexy and like moves along yeah. and like a million things happen in it. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. it's hilarious. It's also like, it's a thriller. It's, it's, it is actually, I, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen it several times and there are moments where it does genuinely kind of scare me, but, but it's still a comedy. Uh, Zach, I believe you had a thought. I did. I was holding on to it. Um, so Emmett talking about how it doesn't feel like any of these actors are in the same movie prompted me onto like a, a little swirl of like two separate thoughts. One is where Marlon Brando is in his career in this movie is like he is mm. he is aged out of the I saw the phrase androgynous heartthrob era of Marlon Brando and like streetcar and his bod- bodice ripper type of uh, self. And he hasn't become the full, full-throated, whatever the Godfather and Apocalypse Now version of Marlon Brando is. And like you think about the the arc that takes him from A mm. to Z Messy. on his career span, it's just bizarre. I mean, like what a, what an odd level of growth. So he's in this like it feels like it's a growing pain of Marlon Brando because mm. this is this is an era like you talk about Brando's most famous roles, right? It's either the beginning or the end the stuff in the middle like the Mm. the nearest thing that i think anybody's going to bring up is maybe guys and dolls but i don't think they're going to bring that up because it was brando oh i forgot he's in guys and dolls yeah he's he's in guys and dolls masterson with sinatra unbelievable yeah yeah the 60s are a rough time for brando he like signed like a five picture deal with the universal Mm. which he had never done because it was part of his like this is the phase of his career where he's become disillusioned with acting and he's like i'm just gonna do it for money i'm not really gonna care so he signed this deal where he was just like yeah whatever whatever you want to put me in i'll do it and this is i think two or three in that deal this movie that makes oh that makes sense yeah especially if it was three oh yeah (laughs) 
when you're just halfway done. It was it's, it's the Wednesday of the Brando verse. I did not find Brando particularly charming in this movie. Right, he was absolutely supposed to be charming because how else? How else is his con going to work? How else does it work? You yeah. have to rely on charm and charisma. And I will say, I do think his grift, I do think is very good. And I think that plays into time period specifically because I, when else after this, anyway, could you do something like that to just go use an old camera, take a picture of some lady's house, show it to her five mm-hmm. minutes later and say, my grandmother grew up here. And, and they just believe you because there's no way to check. Mm-hmm. And it's in Europe, too. And and so I don't know if, like, the, the use of a phone book uh, even was something that could have, you know. So I, I do think that grift specifically is pretty solid. But even then, he's just kind of like this guy. <laughs> I t- I, he doesn't have a lot of charm. He doesn't have a lot of charisma. He's just kind of like... No way, my grandmother used to live in this house. And you're like, oh, what? No, yes? Wow. Come sleep with me. Um, it's uh, very, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I think his character was supposed to have a lot of, there we go again, charm and charisma. And he just didn't. He was very, like, forward about stuff and, like, kind of blunt and just mm. there, which is brought up later. I mean, that's supposed to contrast with... Um, David Niven's character, but even then, what it was about him that ultimately sealed the deal for these griffs and cons, I really don't know. Yeah, I would agree. And I do think that's it's interesting what you say about how it's supposed to be a counterpoint to David Niven's character and the way that that is a much smoother, slicker, more charming sort of a guy. I guess what we're supposed to believe, and like I, this is just me pretending, putting myself in the head of the 1964 producer, is that like this guy is so sexy that we're supposed to believe that people just fell for it. But like I agree with you that I don't actually think that about this version of Brando. But maybe they were just like going off a of star power? That's very possible. Because, like, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen very many Brando films, but in my head, he's, Mm -hmm. especially earlier, Brando is very much like this incredibly, like, a different kind of suave, a very sexy, very Mm -hmm. um, alluring kind of person. And, like, yes, definitely, I mean, especially seeing as he so famously played Stanley in Streetcar, um, a certain kind of masculinity mm-hmm. as well, a very kind of like macho s- sort of vibe. But mm-hmm. like that appeal um, of Brando just did not come through for me in this movie. And I, f- I feel like it should have, and it didn't. It wasn't supposed to be him, right? Uh, when I was doing a little oh. bit of research on this movie, which I see Wade nodding. So, yes. So it was supposed to be uh, Gregory Peck as Lawrence, this would be two years after Atticus Finch. Uh, and then it was supposed to be Tony Curtis Damn. as Freddy. Ooh. And Tony Curtis, I, I looked uh, at Tony Curtis's resume at the time. And what he was doing was a um, big, big thing for the, the theater geeks, uh, Boeing Boeing. He was playing Bernard, the guy who has... Ah! <laughs> ah! Yes! <laughs> Tony Curtis playing this very specific type of womanizer who has... 
three different flight attendants from three different countries in his massive Paris apartment on a revolving door basis. And then they all show up at the apartment at one time. Right. So he's, he's a scumbag. He's, he's uh, like not abusing, but like he's um, lying to these women. Uh, I mean, it is, it is an abuse, but without, um, and he is like, but he's still charming, right? It's still a charming role because it's a farce. And so Boeing Boeing is written to have us like follow along and like still root for him to work it out, even though he has all these women who they believe they're exclusive with him rotating through his apartment. So like it was for Tony Curtis and Gregory Peck and uh, Tippy Hedren, I think, who could not get free. Birds? And because, uh, as Wade mentioned, yes, birds, uh, studio. She, you saying she couldn't get free birds? She couldn't get free bird. Studios held actors in like a... I already a, regret it. <laughs> I don't. The way studios would hold these actors in like a vice grip, they just, they couldn't get free. They couldn't arrange it. Yeah, Tippi Hedren was with Hitchcock. Yeah, so, and he just like wouldn't let her go. And then I think... She was on this, yeah, this deal that she would only be in Hitchcock movies. Again, wow. back to, it feels like none of them are in the same movie. None of them were supposed to be there. Um, this film was released June 10th, 1964 by Universal Pictures. I could not find any budget for it, uh, but it made $3 million at the box office, which is the equivalent of $26 million today. So it was at best sort of a modest success. I can't imagine they spent much on making it. No. It looks like about $5. <laughs> but would you like to hear some other movies from 1964? 1964. Highest grossing films, backed by popular demand. Mary Poppins at number one, coming in with $31 million. And she also wins Best Actress, Julie mm-hmm. Andrews, for the Academy sure, sure Awards did. for this, uh, for the pictorial of Miss Poppins. Uh, number two goes to My Fair Lady, another movie musical. So I mean, the number one and number two slots in 1964 are movie musicals, which is wild to me. For uh, My Fair Lady, the stage musical... Uh, it on Broadway originally starred Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison was cast in the film adaptation as um, Professor Henry Higgins, and uh, Julie Andrews was not. They went with mm-hmm. another favorite of the 60s, Audrey Hepburn, who is not a strong singer. So her voice was mm-hmm. dubbed. I don't remember by who. Um, and so it's tr- it's tricky because My Fair Lady swept the Oscars that year, but they, because it, it's sort of up, it's a little bit up in the air because I do think Julie Andrews was 100% deserving of that win uh, for Mary Poppins. Honestly, I think it's a very different role for her and I think she's very strong in it, but it's a little bit of an, oh, we're sorry we didn't put you in My Fair Lady, even though you already did the show. So it, mm. it, it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword thing there because it's like, yes, she's, I do think she's perfectly deserving of, of the win for Mary Poppins, but it was like, oh, mm. <laughs> studios uh, feeling bad that they gave the role to someone who wasn't her, even though I think Audrey does wonderful. I think she's perfect in that movie, too. Thank you for that. You're That's welcome. a fascinating tidbit. At our number three slot in this rundown is the film Goldfinger, oh. which is the, I believe, the fourth James Bond, the third Sean Connery James Bond, oh. rest in peace to a legend. So I would just say overall, like looking at this movie and its treatment and depiction of women, looking at the James Bond movies on this list, at least, I would say it's about on par yeah. uh, with 
other 1960s movies. Probably better, honestly, in the movie musical region than it is in the uh, action or adult drama comedy. I've seen a couple of these. I've seen at least a couple of the Pink Panthers, Goldfinger, and Mary Poppins off this list. All of those movies, I would say, are of a much higher quality, at least in filmmaking, than this film is. If not in, like, you know, like gender politics or, you know, cultural correctness or what, what have you. Bedtime Story refuses to acknowledge directly that it's about sex, right? Like, it, it shies away from it. The, mm. the closest mm-hmm. we get is a weird conversation between Lawrence and his Mark who gets the most attention where they just cut to like it's this like pillow talk conversation between Lawrence and his Mark and it's this painting of, of, a, of a Spanish bullfighter and a gourd bull. The, like very charming, lovely conversation post pillow talk. You know, he's being the the suave guy, but like it refuses to talk about and like acknowledge that it's a movie about sex, which is very bizarre to me since like James Bond is about sex and power and more stuff too. Sure, mm-hmm. but like you know, we we fully acknowledge it, right? Um, so clearly, mm-hmm. as a society, like we're looking at this like moment of. Uh, uh, forward advancement of consideration of like we can look at sex we can consider sex in our movies we can acknowledge mm-hmm. it in our pop culture and so for this mm-hmm. movie to rob women of any agency whatsoever at any point but also to just ignore sex when the title of the movie bedtime story to me makes no sense at all I, I don't understand why that's the title of this movie unless it's mm. about the sexual connections. Yeah. I do think the title is curious and the way that they set up the film, mm. that opening credit sequence mm-hmm. visually oh. I thought was really nice. <laughs> like just looking at it, it was like, oh, it's so it's an animated storybook and it's like a pop-up book and it's pretty. And they set it up like a fairy tale of like once upon a time there was a prince who wasn't really a prince, but everyone thought he was a prince. And then there was also a wolf who was just a wolf. <laughs> So, but then it does, there's no, like, they do that little setup and then that's it. Then there's no moral. There's no, no. wrap up. There's no, no, nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, it was odd. I do feel that that sort of fairy tale pop-up book setup did not go anywhere. Okay. This film got mostly negative reviews. <laughs> what? Really? No oh kidding. my God. It has a 54 on Metacritic, which is compiled from three reviews. <laughs> Uh, which were from TV Guide, The New York Times, and Variety. Wow! Imagine getting reviewed by Variety and The New York Times. And TV Guide. Variety writes, Bedtime story will divert the less discriminating, although there are times when even such major league performers as Marlon Brando and David Niven have to strain to sustain the overall meager romantic comedy material. Wow. Well, I'm glad we're all on the same page here. Well, having said that, uh, I guess we'll start with Molly. Bedtime story, flop or bop? Oh, flop. For, For several reasons. I mean, I think the film was pretty visually. It was very nice, very summertime, you know. And that's uh, that's really the main good thing I have to say about it. Uh, I would love to discuss further the um, treatment of women in this film. 
especially when we're looking at uh, the other top two, not other top two, but the top two films for that year of Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady, there's a lot of debate of like, Mm. is Pygmalion a feminist story? I think it is. Um, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot, uh, to be said there, but even then it's very clear that Eliza has agency at least like in a certain way in this movie. What? <laughs> ah, no, it's so weird. It's very, very <laughs> strange. It's very strange. And I think the ending is really abrupt. <laughs> eventually, mm-hmm. eventually there, when it, when we talk about like character comparison, um, between David Nivens and Brando's characters, I think it was all just so like basic and like some things we've touched on like the you know student and the master and like learning from each other um and we see how david niven's character uses his like he has larger marks um getting more money and using his funds um to support artists and small businesses in the town where he lives so he sort of like uses his money for noble causes um even though you know he gets it in uh less than noble means um whereas brando's character is kind of you know it's like okay for this meal and then like i got a hundred bucks for a plane ride home it's like okay it's not long term but that was that never felt like i that only like occurred to me about half an hour ago (laughs) um maybe not even i I felt like that wasn't super it wasn't discussed necessarily i mean it's like he showed him it's like here's what i do the ballet mistress needs money to teach ballet and Brand was like, eh, who needs it? Outside of that, it's like a that, <laughs> like I, the difference is I don't know. I all this to say I do think the film I, is a flop. I do love the moment where this film turns into a surprise socialist arts PSA though. Yes. That is a fun moment. Where David yeah. Niven is like, What if we what if we funded arts and artisans with all of this money mm-hmm. that rich people are just wearing? Exactly. But where is the moment where David Niven is like, oh, I do it for the thrill of the chase or something Mm -hmm. like that? You know, he's like, if he's just giving all the money away, then why is he actually doing it? Yeah. You know, like, because there's something deeper. Like, he doesn't seem like an altruist, you know? Mm -hmm. He's giving the money away because he doesn't need it. Yeah. He He also lives in a chateau. He's, like, interested in the arts, but he's not, like... So he, like, is doing it for something besides just, like, that thing he says it is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I wrote, the tax montage really lost me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that was when I was, like... That's when I was in. I was, like, maybe this movie is good. Like... (laughs) That's when I was out and I was out for the rest of the thing from there. Nothing through the end was just a slog from that point. I really, I will say, I really liked Janet, that actress. Um, I do, I don't remember. She was in The Music Man and I can't remember her name. Shirley Jones. Shirley Jones. Oh my God. Yes. Thank you. Because she's a huge deal. I thought she did a really nice job and I kind of kept waiting for something more to happen for her character. And here's my, my my thought. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if she was conning them the whole time? And then that never happened. No. She and Brando got married in this very, like, we didn't even see what, like, it just happened. And she was like, in my home, I want the husband to be the boss. And they sailed away on an ocean liner. And it was super uh, anticlimactic and weird. Because she definitely seemed like she was in a different movie. She was pure-hearted and good and just there. Because she won a contest and she has having a nice vacation. But also, on that note, she was alone in a foreign country. She's young. 
for the 60s even I feel like that's kind of rare and they didn't like she was entirely by herself the whole time unless she was with Brando and David Niven's characters and I found that kind of odd like the more I thought about it I was like there ha- there's no explanation as to why she's totally by herself which like isn't something we really think about now of course but especially with this movie's very outdated standards it's like never commented on that she's alone of course the fact that she's alone makes her an easy target for these guys but even then i don't know that's that was something that sort of stuck Mm. out to me but all this to say flap 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 flip flap flap yeah this movie takes place in a europe that is entirely populated by filthy rich home owning single young white blonde women (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like everyone we see in it is like that mm-hmm. zach bedtime mm-hmm. story flop or bop ah man i want to bop it for what twist it flick it i want to bop it for what it gave us in the future i want to bop it for dirty rotten scoundrels and dirty rotten scoundrels the musical however when my top three memorable performances are a French sidekick hell-bent on homicide, a seagull. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. Harriet. Harriet the seagull. And that they brought her back was just very lovely. That's the woman with the most agency in the whole movie. (laughs) God, and we haven't even talked about the most, like terrible things in this film and yeah do we even need to (laughs) i mean i can really quick like you gotta you gotta you gotta flop it because it and and i think that dirty rotten scoundrels will run into future trouble with this and uh, i don't remember well enough in the hustle if they uh, copy pasted this part too but to have marlon brando fred to have freddie pose as lawrence's invalid brother of questionable Hmm. uh mental health it just like it was hmm, it was vague enough that it was never making fun of a specific thing i'll Mm -hmm. let i'll let it rock with that and uh but 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 the the strangeness of it uh i think that like especially to translate the the bit of ruprecht right the basement dwelling brother who keeps calling uh lawrence's mark's mother and like to have that work you gotta go full weird with it like it's it's maybe Mm -hmm. you know like in the musical there's a line about how he collects his farts in a mason jar and then he opens up the jar in front of the woman right like it's like stuff like that where you're not really targeting too specifically and i think that steve martin is doing that a little bit in the 80s one but i also think he's a little worse honestly and i was actually like comparing the two in my head as i was watching them and i was like oh this is less offensive because it's less funny yeah (laughs) essentially no like it is less specific and therefore and therefore like less offensive but it also like doesn't work as a comedic bit yep so like that's i mean and i think that's interesting i think it's interesting in how like we laugh at transgression and if you're transgressing a little, you're just like, oh, that's uncomfortable. If you're transgressing a lot, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. I wonder, because it was almost as though Brando's character was pretending to be more of a dangerous animal creature, like a goblin, mm-hmm. than, mm-hmm. than, mm-hmm. A, than a, a person. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, there was all, it was like the, 
Yes. Keep keep smiling. <laughs> no, you're not smiling. Uh, like the the women mm-hmm, had to mm-hmm. keep a, a smile, keep a grin, and um, and then he was like, no, don't like no biting, Ruprecht. So, but it was weird, and it was short. Oh, you'll need to get that looked at. Oh yes, he's not contagious that we know of. What was odd as well, I think the uh, Ruprecht segment was shorter than the Patron of the Arts montage, and that yeah. reads weird for a comedy film like this. That's true. That's but true. it was also like, thank God it was short because it was hard to watch. Wade, mark it down 42 minutes and 20 seconds. A strangely damning <laughs> um, thing from the review from TV Guide in 1964 is lots of silliness, a contest for Shirley's affections, Brando posing as a cripple, always lots of laughs, uh, and more. Lighthearted but heavy-handed, good work by all the second bananas, and a nice score by, Sal- score by Salter. What? Um, the heck? Nice work by all the second bananas. Yeah. So, like, and I agree with that. Honestly, like Andre, like the the homicidal Frenchman. That's and Harriet the seagull. Here we go. That's good. The uh, wheelchair situation, which is like the main part of the movie. Yeah, is so tricky. Ugh. It's so mad. Like I, I frankly, I'm not really sure how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like his his Brando Freddy's story about how he ended up, how he came to be in a wheelchair. Like maybe, I mean, it doesn't like redeem it entirely. I don't even know if that's the right word, but the like that his his story that it's entirely psychological because he was fake. He you know the story of like oh I was engaged. And she ran away with a dancer. Um, so now, and I, I like I thought about it too much. What was it? He had a nightmare or something. And then he woke up, and his he mm-hmm. can't walk anymore because it pains him to see people dancing. Is a an incredibly silly story that again no one will believe unless you are charming and charismatic, which Freddie is not, as we have already established. Which is sort of like, oh no, Janet has no brain, or she's too trusting, which is a better way to think about it. So maybe, like, he, he put himself there? I don't, I don't know. It was, it's a very tricky thing. I, I will say, I think the image of him being completely buried in the sand, save for his head, with the seagull, is funny. Was it worth all of this very tricky wheelchair material to get to that moment? No, <laughs> it wasn't. And we will see how that ages in the uh, 80s one, which I think also has mm-hmm. at least some parts of that, because I remember the yeah. part where Steve Martin is walking out of the wheelchair. Yeah. It is like this interesting thing in like plays like this. Uh, I feel like this is a trope in plays of like the person who's pretending to not be able to walk and then miraculously can, but it's not really a miracle because it's been a grift the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is like a thing that happens a lot in plays. I don't think that like redeems it as a trope, but I also think there's an interesting like look at like are you um are you like making fun of people who have to use wheelchairs? I do think there are a couple of those kind of jokes in this movie, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, are you mm-hmm. making fun of this guy who's pulling a grift being and put himself in a wheelchair to do this grift uh-huh. and like the situations that he has like not suspected running into in that situation yes which i think is like kind of interesting and so i don't know i don't know where i fall on that as a trope i think in this in this movie it doesn't doesn't always work 
I think you're absolutely yeah. spot on with that. The, the the greatest joke that works from the the chunk of time where Freddie is in the wheelchair is when David Niven, as as the doctor, takes his like his his stick, his walking stick, and just like wallops the heck out of <laughs> Freddie's legs, and like Brando just has to like hold it in and morphs his weird flexible face and like he tickles look, he's his crying. feet. He tickles his feet, right? Like. Like it, because it's making fun of of Freddie of the bad guy, um, mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. of d- d- folks with disabilities, folks in wheelchairs. So it's like a comedy, and I, this is a different soapbox for a different day. But like comedy is about to me sincerity and what you do with that sincerity, and and I think that empathy and sincerity, like like you can't create authentic comedy. You can probably create like cringe comedy. You can create stuff like that, and like. I will I will admit that I am not uh above laughing at a cringe comedy moment or two even from this abomination but like if you want comedy that will endure I think you need to create it with sincerity and empathy and an understanding of what you're doing and not reaching for the lowest fruit Absolutely So yeah I I agree with you there Emmett yeah Yeah that's well said Zach I was also greatly disturbed by by the brother thing and then when he comes in in a wheelchair. My first reaction was like, oh, we need to cancel the miniseries. I was like, there's no value whatsoever that could possibly come out of us discussing something as like horribly offensive as this. Mm-hmm. And then when you realize that the bit he is trying to pull off is that he is someone who has emotionally lost the ability to walk. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, that is the funniest thing in the movie to me, but it's not funny in the movie mm-hmm. because they never pull it off. It's just no! funny thinking about it. Yeah. No, it never <laughs> never works. That's the thing is this movie is filled with setups that don't go anywhere. Luckily, about 20 years later, two great actors will come along and pick up all of those setups. Yes. I am interested. Like, three great, three great was actors, it? actually. What was it that that they were like? Oh, this terrible movie from the sixties. Let's uh, let's do it again. Like, what? I mean, mm-hmm. clear. I yeah. still haven't haven't, as we discussed, I have not seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels yet, but I would like to, especially to cross compare with this terrible film we all watched to to figure out like what, why, why this? Uh, Emmett Flopper Bob. Well, it's a good thing that we waited this long to ask me this question. <laughs> but I will say, I will say flop. If you'd asked me earlier, I really enjoyed watching this movie. Uh, uh, despite all of its numerous flaws. Watching bad movies is fun. But I enjoyed it for the reason that I've enjoyed a lot of X-Men movies, which is that they remind me of other better movies. Uh, specifically, the other Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I guess is Almost until like the third act twist, like a dead remake. Almost word for word, I believe. Yeah, like almost word for word in the first, what, like three quarters? Uh huh. So yeah, flop. I love, however, I love David Niven in this movie. Mm-hmm. He was my favorite part, I think, in the sequel. Wait, flop or bop? Uh, it's a flop for me, for sure. Oh. I kind of enjoyed some of the bits before they got together. And everything from there on was pretty bad for me. Even if you take away all the problematic stuff, it's just not well made. 
Yeah. Like it's just not. It's just good. not. No, no. <laughs> like even if you were, if you were to turn off that part of your brain, and you would be like, it was a different time. Whatever people say, like there's just isn't anything of value there still. <laughs> no. no, it's like a bad high school production. Oof, with one good actor in it <laughs> and one other actor who's usually good, but in this in this production is drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's like they 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 had to cast they had to cast him up. Like he's he's usually playing the mm-hmm. the 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 dads, and it's like he's always really good at playing the dads. I don't understand why he was bad as Freddy, or no, Freddy would be the the <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever. Blah. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. I wanted to take this time to read Joan Didion's review of this movie in Whoa. Vogue. Wow. Who you may remember from a few episodes ago, we talked about her on our Lady Bird episode. This is pretty long, so stick with me. This is just selections from it. But I think it shows what the reaction was at the time. Some things just aren't as funny as they once were. And many of those things are movies. A Stanley Shapiro movie generally depends... Neither upon dialogue nor upon situation and dialogue, but upon situation alone. And this latest movie is no exception. A kind of prolonged sick joke. Bedtime Story (laughs) places Marlon Brando, David Niven, and Shirley Jones in front of some boldly fraudulent process shots of the French Riviera (laughs) and then proceeds to milk the notion that there's something pretty funny about Marlon Brando impersonating A, a mental defective, and B a hysterically crippled veteran. Typically, part of the joke is not exactly in the story, but irrelevant to it, an inside joke. It is supposed to strike the audience... It is supposed to strike the audience as hilarious and hippie that Brando, whose first movie role was that of a paraplegic in The Men, is back in his wheelchair. Let me say that anyone who believes that situation is all there in comedy ought to be made to sit... Once is enough through bedtime story. Oh my god! <laughs> Joan Didion's knives were out, dude. Knives, knives out. Ah. But this out. is like this is the thing, and I find this I find this generally always to be true is that whenever we look back at something and we're like, "Wow, that was really messed up," almost always people back then were like, "This is really messed up too." <laughs> <laughs> that's comforting good. in a way. Good, like that's Gosh. yeah, that feels yeah. good. Incredible. Did, did Joan Didion write up Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Because I'm curious about that. I, no, I don't so. know. I'll have to find <laughs> out next week. I remember earlier, like uh, much earlier, uh, the movie Pillow Talk was brought up. And I said, oh, cute movie. Um, I watched that a really long time ago. And just in case it doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> uh, maybe it wasn't good. I don't know. But it's, uh, it's Doris Day and I think Rock Hudson. <laughs> I remember they, I was I was like in middle school maybe seeing it at my grandparents' house and I was like oh it's cute I like it but I don't know maybe if I went back and watched it now I wouldn't I'm not really sure but I just want to put that disclaimer out there. I feel like this whole podcast could be I liked it at the time <laughs> but if it didn't age well where are we now? Who do we think is the protagonist of this film? Harriet the Seagull. And what do they want? <laughs> to feed Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. <laughs> I guess it's Brando's character, but it could be a dual protagonist movie because they both, in terms of like 
screen time or whatever. It's pretty equally shared there. And then they also, in theory, learn and grow from each other. I don't know that we really see much of that, um, except at the end where David Niven is, is like, oh, I suppose he's the happy man with one woman, but those of us like me with several women must continue on in our unhappy lives. And I'm like, what? You Okay, so you didn't learn anything. I think David Niven should be the protagonist, and I think that we lose the, the, the growth, right? We lose the greatest potential for growth. Because in situations like this where I don't see one, um, I like to try and go for, like, the old standby of who grows the most, who changes the most. And, like, Freddy changes in that he is cowed, but he's still a uh, one hour, 40 seconds wait. He's still a when it comes down to it, right? So he doesn't really grow or change at all. Um, David, David Niven Lawrence, however, has a moment where he goes, the grift is off. Protect the girl. We're not going to do this to this poor sweet girl, right? He has this like little Jiminy Cricket moment. Hmm. Except, mm-hmm. to me, our our little socialism parade of support the arts undermines that um, because we previously see that he does have a conscience. Because mm, it sh- it mm-hmm. shows that he's got a conscience. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So if you get rid of that, and and I spent that whole little like window shopping scene of. The, the 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 silversmith and the ballet and all of that i was like these are all plants these are all marks these are all people he's paying off to do something to freddie and that's just me having far too much confidence mm-hmm. in this movie uh, by by yeah. having him do that right we we already know he's capable of caring even so slightly right it's it's a lost art form it'll die with him like there's 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 a ruefulness to that and so mm. his change of heart revolving janet like doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, so I guess it should be mm. Lawrence. It should be David Piven. I think that this, I agree with you, Zach, that the, I think this movie is confused about who the protagonist is. And like, it should be Lawrence. Well, it should be one of them more clearly mm. than the other, than it is. Mm-hmm. And neither of them grows or learns a ton in it. So it's kind of hard to do your little trick on it. Cause as you say, they both remain pretty much the same at the end. I think this movie starts and ends with Lawrence. And so sometimes when I can't take anything else, I go with that. I'll say it it starts as his story. It opens with his hands. It ends with him like talking to the camera and walking away. So I could be convinced that it's him. The problem with that is that I'm much clearer on what Marlon Brando wants. And what his character wants is to be the top goof on the goof heap, (laughs) daddy-o. Wade, do you have any... Any good ideas about what it is? I have no ideas, and I I don't necessarily care to. (laughs) While we're talking about (laughs) the end, the end is so weird. Mm -hmm. It is so weird, because it just feels like, because it happens off screen, Marlon's Mm -hmm. character transformation happens Mm -hmm. off screen, and it feels like Mm -hmm. it's another con. That's just what I assumed, because mm-hmm. the whole movie is a con. Yeah. So you assume that he's playing him in yeah. some way by saying this, mm-hmm. and then it isn't, which mm-hmm. isn't just like bad writing. Mm-hmm. It's writing that is out of step with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like yeah. it is doing something yeah. the rest of the movie is not doing. And if it isn't a con, and he really did fall in love, where is the scene where he has to tell her 
that he was cheating her mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's a liar, but he mm-hmm. really fell in love with her and let's be together. Like, where is that scene? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it doesn't go full in on the wholesome comedy either. Yeah. No. It ends by saying he's happier, but he looks miserable yeah. when we see him on the ship. Well, because they yeah. do yeah. they do this thing where where she's she's there and she's saying, like, I grew up in a house where the husband was was the boss and I want my life to be just like that. And he goes, Yes, dear. And so everything he said, everything she says, saying like, oh, you're in charge, you're the boss, I'm just a weak woman, um, he, his only response is like, yes, dear, yes, honey, yes. And that is the joke. Because it's the, oh, she's saying she wants the husband mm-hmm. to be in charge, but he's here he is just agreeing with her. So like, really, who's in charge? You know, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. like kind of the joke there. But it's such an old, old, old old joke yeah and if you're not ringing any changes on it like what the hell it's not because it's not subverting anything and it's not new and it's not funny anyway sorry to yell and then i also love the cutaway from the ocean liner back to david niven's character in his chateau that he as he looks out the window at the ocean liner that it is a painting and they did nothing to hide that fact <laughs> and i always i always like find that Not a little bit care. fun like in in older films or uh, that like oh this was like this is a prop this is a set painting but in this case like there's no like it is just a painting behind that window there is no attempt to make you think otherwise and i found that very funny molly who was your favorite character in this movie other than the protagonist <laughs> or the dual protagonist. I guess we'll take Marlon and David off the table. Who is your favorite other than them? Um, you know, I honestly enjoyed I don't hear, I don't know if she was my favorite, but I enjoyed uh Fanny of Omaha, who shows up <laughs> early in the movie as one of uh Lawrence's marks at, who is, you know, they they do this grift of like accidentally revealing that he's the prince and like oh no one can know and please don't bother him and and of course she's like what i know a secret now you can trust you can trust me but she was just so like just this like genuinely sweet midwestern busybody kind of lady who was just enjoying being part of something and i thought the actress who played her was very endearing and funny and um you know she's part of how brando finds out that david niven this character is is also a con man just like he is and then the ball gets rolling so i i again i don't know that she was necessarily my favorite but i found her fun and uh we haven't talked about her much on here yet so shout out to uh fanny of omaha mm. zach who's your mvp uh it's gonna be a tie but i'll, I'll have to give harriet siegel honorable mention <laughs> just <laughs> just utterly charmed by her work and then I would say uh, Andre, Lawrence's right-hand man, my, my precious, precocious, mm-hmm. uh, d- dogged and determined homicidal Frenchman. Like, I just, I really dug what he was laying down for us. Uh, again, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. my favorite joke is... I agree. <laughs> here's the pistol of a, of a dead Nazi. His fingerprints are still on it. And when they say, who killed this man? Oh my God, it was this dead Nazi. They'll be like, how'd he do that? We don't know. End of story. Like, that's it. Like, what an amazing solution. What an amazing hype man. What an amazing, 
like backup plan. Like he's just got that pistol sit wrapped in like a precious white cloth sitting in a box, like in his like shed ready to go. He was in the boy scouts of whatever country he's from. Yeah, right. He was the boy scout of France. He's yeah. Emmett, who's your MVP? I don't know. Were there even any other characters in this movie? <laughs> I will say, I think that I'm going to have to go with the first girl that Marlon Brando pulls his gag <laughs> on, his like grift on with the house. She is just like, I mean, to play that stupid, to play a character that is just that taken in mm-hmm. by everything is really difficult. Yeah. And I think she does it reasonably i think she does it like really well i think as far as like a terribly problematic depiction of like just female gullibility awful but was her acting good probably no thoughts head empty emmett uh your mvp the actress was cynthia lynn this is her only film performance Uh uh-huh she got pregnant on the set of this movie had a child shortly after the movie came out and after Marlon Brando's death, her daughter revealed that she was Marlon Brando's child. Oh my god. What? <laughs> oh my wow. god. Wow. <laughs> that dog. What the hell? So, Emmett, Wait. You, is there anything you'd like to ask me? Yes, Emmett? I would love to ask you. Who was your MVP OT M B or D N? <laughs> Um, well, it was the butler. He's the best okay. performance in this movie by mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. But since he's taken, I'm going to go with, I have written down here, Jason Schwartzman as the taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> the beefcake guy who comes and picks yes. him up. The yeah. hottie with the mustache who has to carry Marlon Brando around in one yes. scene. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like he's so strong. <laughs> says absolutely nothing <laughs> when i first saw him in this film i was like is that a real person i literally thought it was an animatronic <laughs> that's where all the budget went incredible all right emmett should we play bums the word all right let's play bums the word okay this is our game where we find similar movies to the one we watch and try to guess them we normally source this through imdb but after our true hatred and complete failure of IMDb last week, mm. we're looking for new sources. Uh, this week, I found through the website bestsimilar.com, which I would not recommend. <laughs> but it has told me, if you like Bedtime Story, you are looking for clever movies about gigolo, rivalry, prince, con artists, seduction, bet, and farce. Gigolo. That's Accordingly, I have here six movies, <laughs> six movies that Best Similar says are bet. And we're going to see how many of them we can name. Everyone's playing together. That are similar to this movie on the basis of betting. That have some number of characters who are engaged in a bet, which is a primary plot line in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's the unifying theme between these six movies and Bedtime Story. I tried to pick ones that I thought you guys would know. So, right. Are there any Oceans movies in there? Oceans 11 through 13? There, there were some on the list, but I did not pick any. Okay. I'm going to guess My Fair Lady. Oh, wow. So uh, I give you guys hints, but 
My Fair Lady was on there, so you've gotten one without even without <laughs> even any prompt. Hints is oh. great. That's so I didn't much. Know there were uh, hints. I'm so sorry. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of six down. Okay, the second okay. film is a 1983 comedy. It's it's sort of a two leading roles, two leading men like this movie, and one of them was like the most popular stand-up comic at the time. This is a movie that recently sort of became relevant again because of some real-world news that happened at the start of this year. There's so much news. This is also a Christmas movie. Oh, it's Die Hard. But it's not Die Hard. It's uh, no, it's not Die Hard. Not die- I'm sorry. I just listened to a, a podcast about Die Hard, so it's on my mind. But it has nothing to do with bets, so I don't really know why. You I said 1983? 1983. 1983, straight-up comedy. Uh-huh. Christmas. Uh-huh. One of the lead actors is the most popular stand-up comic of 1983? Yeah, of that era. Okay. Scrooged? Was oh, that... oh! Is it trading places? There, it is trading it. places. Trading places. Wow. Okay, the third movie here. This is a 2019 film. It's described as a crime thriller. I'm not sure if I would say that. It's a uh, a New York movie. Uh, it's a Jewish film. Is it Uncut Gems? <laughs> it is Uncut Gems. <laughs> what? <laughs> A New York In what movie. World. Uh, well, what connects them for me is that I disliked both of them. Okay, this fourth one is from 2000. It's a British film. It is a gangster comedy. It's one of the first films from a very famous director. Now, Snatch, right? Is it Snatch? Yes. Yeah, it be. is Snatch. Yeah, Guy Ritchie. It is Snatch. Okay, we got two more. This one is a 2012. It's called a rom-com. I think that's a little bit misleading. It's from a famous quirky director. It is based on a novel. Quirky director. Oh, is it a is it a Wes Anderson? It's not Wes Anderson. Okay. He's a little more realistic than Wes Anderson, but sort of stylized. He's a guy who sort of every time he makes a movie which isn't that frequent, they get a lot of Oscars. This is starring an actress who is on a run of like getting nominated for Best Actress every single year. A young actress playing much oh, older in this movie. Was this uh, American Hustle? You've got the director. It's not American Hustle. David O. Russell. Oh, was this... Wait, 2012? Is that Silver Linings? Did he do... Did he do Silver Linings? Playbook? It is Silver Linings. Oh. Silver Linings Playbook. Is there a bet in there? Yeah, they They're do like dancing. a dance competition. Oh, huh. And the last movie in our bet series is a 1999 teen movie. It is ooh, how uh, how to say this without giving too much away. It's sort of a trendsetter in terms of style. It's adapted from a play. Is it Ten Things I Hate About You? It is Ten Things I Hate About Ten You. Yes. Are we? Ninety-nine. Good luck. Well, congrats! Congrats to everyone on. <laughs> Winning bombs the word. Hey. That is very fun. It's a very good game. Yeah, that was good. I like this game. Yes. You guys were good at it before you even were playing it. So, <laughs> so That's sorry. Molly, man. Molly is powerful. I like I like trivia. Molly, final thoughts? Any final thoughts here on Bedtime Story? No. I, 
I mean, I sort of feel like we've exhausted all the thoughts that can be had about this unfortunate little film. I mean, I, I think I was excited to properly watch a Brando movie because I think I, I've seen mm. pieces of Streetcar and I, I've seen Apocalypse Now. And as we know, that was not Brando at his best. So I will say, here is my final thought. Here it is. Was Ruprecht a small little little uh, future glimpse for Apocalypse Now Brando? Who can say? Maybe. Mm. There's uh. that. <laughs> 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 terrible, terrible. Uh, Zach, final thoughts? Um, yeah, I... I appreciate the blueprint that it gave us for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I think ultimately it was entirely toothless, and that's why none of it succeeded. Tried to just kind of gum and gnaw its way through, and if it had, I think, fully committed to the type of movie that it could be, we wouldn't have to go to back alley measures to find it and watch it. But thank God... Mm. (laughs) You you have to, to, to protect our children. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's a it's a bad movie. It's not good. There's plenty of other movies you could spend your time watching that would be better, especially Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Maybe if it holds up. Yeah, that's about it. I oh, oh to the point about like, is this a glimpse of him in uh, Apocalypse Now? I thought he looked so much like the picture of the captain that he's supposed to have been mm. in this mm-hmm. movie. Ah. It, it, like when he's in his army uniform yeah he looks like he looks like who kurtz is supposed to be mm-hmm. and then who you find is somebody completely different which yeah is- well and in this one i don't think he had any cue cards or note cards hidden around the set he may have he probably did. that's true he did it for on the waterfront <laughs> wait what were your thoughts I don't really have many. I liked his little purse. I like Marlon Brando's little purse at the mm-hmm. beginning. He's yeah. like, that was a real highlight for me. Yeah. I also liked that the opening credits said Jewels by Cartier. That yes! was fun. Oh, yeah, yes. that was cool. That feeling, that feeling like, oh, like you're watching an older movie because you don't see credits like that anymore. And I did, I did actually say something out loud last as we were watching that of like, oh wow, that's very funny. It also said like gowns by someone specific, just not mm. the kinds of credits that you see, mm, especially mm-hmm. at the start Jeff. of a movie. And gowns by Jeff. So I think in sort of a film history kind of way, that is fun. Um, but yes, Jules by Cartier was very fun to see. Yeah, I overall think that this movie is just morally appalling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. That's my main thought. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Zach and Molly, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Well, thank it was you. A blast. For, for this was really delightful. Love to come back. We would love to have you. Yeah. Any projects either of you are working on that you'd like to plug or anywhere the people can find you online? Um. Oh, I have a, a book blog, which sounds kind of silly, but if you're ever curious about books and little reviews and recommendations. I write about those. I try to get one or two posts out per month. So it's not like a a deluge of content, but look it up if you like. It's called Penny for Your Book Thoughts. (laughs) Ha ha. And yeah, you can find me on um, Instagram at moneypenny96. I have no projects coming up as a as a primarily theater-based artist in the midst of this wonderful panini we find ourselves in. And uh, if you want to find more of my hot takes about sincerity and empathy and comedy and 
bad movies and why the office is an abomination of god oh 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 bring it on i'm here i'm ready i watched the whole thing just that i could argue about it i'm on twitter at at pledge Derek for reasons of being anonymous and then i'm on instagram at zach stoltz just my name hot takes are us <laughs> incredible well Emmett will be back next week talking about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yes, very excited to talk Dirty. about that with you. I hope you like it better than this film. I hope I like it better than this film. <laughs> uh, love you guys. Love you guys. Stay love frosted, y'all. y'all. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckman. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.